Hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush, author of the book on product-led growth. And I have here none other than my co-host, Bramley. And today we have Mickey, who founded Gainsight PX. And one of the reasons I'm really excited about Gainsight PX is because whenever it comes to product-led growth, they actually make it easy to do it because they help you, whether it's guiding your users, understanding them, they really try to tackle all the key pain points you would have along the journey of building a successful product-led business. So needless to say, I'm pretty excited about this chat. And I want to just kick it off with sharing or asking Mickey, just how did you become the founder of Gains IPX? Like what got you there in the first place? Awesome. Yeah, so the journey to really build a platform to really focus on product-led growth, I would say, started uh, as an entrepreneur. I've built my first company. It was a SaaS business. Uh, I realized that I need to be able to compete with uh, existing vendors back then. It was in the marketing space. Uh, I built a company called Inside Era. And what I figured out is uh, for me to be able to move fast and uh, seize the opportunity of really getting into this market was leveraging my product. I didn't have a big sales team. I didn't have a big marketing team. And what I had is really a differentiated product that I could use. And I was looking for ways to really use that and as, as a tool to me to gain customers, to acquire customers, to prove the value and to gain to revenue quickly. My first company was also bootstrap. So getting accelerating time to revenue was critical. So that was the first seeds to say, hey, I think it's a common problem. I think we're seeing, and back then it was the marketing space, lots of different options for end customers. And then the company was acquired by Marketo. I joined Marketo for a couple of years. And in Marketo, Marketo was a hyper-growth company moving towards multi-products. And I figured out, hey, this is actually even a bigger problem. Let alone once you have one product, you face that challenge. But what if you have multiple products and you have an install base? Can you do the same? Can you move more efficiently? Also, another element that I saw that there's also high pressure from the analyst and in the market to say, uh, what's your growth number? What's your growth retention number? So there's a lot of pressure to show efficiency as well. And I felt like, hey, can we still go with a sales-led model or even the marketing-led model and keeping the product in the back uh, was to me just like uh, uh, inefficient. So this is why I decided to start building a company named Actrinsic, focusing on really helping you better understand your users, the way you use the product, but kind of really helping you build and push your product as a growth engine. And this is why uh, you know we're, we're serving up uh, product managers, customer success, and so forth to really help them better understand users, better deliver experience, build better products that they can take to market faster. Uh, but also we are focusing recently on, on growth companies. As I said, that challenge to me is the, the goal of the company and what we build. So to give the backstage of the story of product growth, can you just almost take a step back and explain like the differences between sales-led, marketing-led, and product-led growth? Absolutely. So back in the days, we saw the sales-led model was the fact that customers knew about the company, but sales kind of took first the stage and they were pitching the product. They will uh, owe the solution. 
And that model was very, very, uh, I would say, inefficient in terms of uh, financials and uh, how quickly can you launch a new product and company and get to sustainability. It takes a while to have these enterprise sales people to just uh, start uh, reaching out to customers, finding out the pain points, uh, and then connecting that to what you actually built. So the sales-led model was the first uh, basic one. Then came marketing-led where we are trying to make sure that once sales are engaging, they already have a, I would say, ready-to-buy type of customers. And then Marketo, HubSpot, Eloqua, all these players uh, were born to accelerate the customer acquisition to make it more online, digital experience. Another aspect is customers. They wanted that, I would say, consumer-driven experience they want to read about your solution before speaking with sales. They want to look up relevant solutions and relevant vendors the same way they do when they, they do their own even private or personal acquisitions. So in that sense, marketing-led was catching up, helping sales be more efficient, uh, getting a bigger pipe, accelerating that funnel, and then handing off to sales-led mode. The product-led became that uh, from the area that we said, hey, as a customer, I want to reduce risk. I want to see the product in action. I want to see that it actually solves my specific problems I'm, I'm facing. And when I've used to see the sales you know, pitch and then read about the marketing, these were optimized for their purpose. Sales want to close deals. Marketing wants to land more leads. But that's not necessarily telling me what the value proposition is. Because marketing, we've seen how marketing is really great to gain more leads, but sometimes it is about just, you know, I would say it's thought leadership, but not necessarily about the value of the product. And there's a silo uh, feeling from the customer perspective, from the customer journey perspective, that I'm hearing something from marketing, then I'm hearing something from sales, and then I meet the product. And there's a set of expectation I had that might not be fulfilled by that product. So as a customer, I prefer going with a product I actually can try as opposed to go through these hoops. And I think if you look at the new sense of product growth, for me, it's about the end user. It's about my customer acquisition experience. It's about my journey. And it's not about optimizing for sales or optimizing for marketing and not even optimizing customer success. It's actually optimizing for me as an end user. I want to learn about your product online. I want to try. I want to see that it actually solves and addresses my issues. And then, only then, I want to talk to a person or sales rep or so forth just to make sure that I can safely kind of acquire the product and it can also serve other needs in my company. Definitely. And so whenever I look at the difference between like sales-led versus marketing-led, I don't know. Here's my opinion. <laughs> Whenever it comes to the differences, I see marketing-led is really just a better way of acquiring users. Like There was the rise of content marketing. People wanted to, to evaluate a lot more on their own. And they could with the marketing-led approach. But the thing I don't see that's different between the two is the sales process. I still see it as very much, we have a lead. We're going to take this lead from point A to point B in our sales process. That's it. So I don't quite buy the difference between the two because I still see it as like, you know, marketing led is just more efficient. They're better at acquiring leads because they bought into this whole notion of, 
whether it's content marketing or giving people more to evaluate before they make that decision, before they fill out those forms. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that's definitely the right way to put it in because I think also marketing is counted or own the lead number. And there's always continuously, I would say, fight between the whether leads qualified or not and then came marketing qualified leads and sales qualified leads. And there's a continuous discussion in any company I've been a part of this you know, you guys are actually optimizing for leads, but these leads are not really ready to buy. And then sales will always like uh, try to, um, you know, qualify and reach out by themselves. But that's definitely just an optimization. It's overlooking the what the end customer today is expecting. I think the end customer today is overwhelmed with the amount of content that is out there. And can they really try to figure out, because they're going to search a problem, they're going to search a couple of vendors, and now their goal is to understand what's the best suited for them. And if they're just going to try to rely on just content marketing on sales, they're not going to get that answer. And I think this is where I think they're they going to be looking for real, really what the, the product is doing and really uh, go through beyond just uh, the marketing content, which is just tends to be more high level and, uh, and so forth. But I do see marketing is becoming more essential as they uh, move towards understanding the product and understanding the value of the product and being more specific around really nurturing the trials with best practices. Uh, it's still def- very much a, a critical uh, element. I do think that sales are moving into the funnel area where the customer is already trying out the product, that's a very different element than just getting an MQL, I would say. If a customer spends time in your product, they're running a POC, they're definitely ready to buy. And then the salesperson's job is to really build that POC process and really focus on value. And also it pushes sales to be much, much more, I would say, professional about the product itself and the landscape as well, as opposed to just stay with slideware. They can no longer be a slideware type of uh, sales pitches and so forth. I'm curious where you think that sales should jump in into that process of the, you know, the user journey tried out the product. And I know there's a lot of discussion around that, but I'm curious what your opinion is on when the best time for sales to come in to talk to those users. Absolutely. I think that the best option is when uh, they're trying to identify a couple of things as sales, right? Do you have a budget? There's a timeline. What's the use case? So many uh, discovery questions. And to schedule those meetings with the customer and the customer sometimes don't want to share some of the data. But as soon as you are actually exposing your trials, you will know based on the usage that, oh, I've seen 10 people from company X trying the product, and I'm seeing they're actually looking for specific areas of my product. So I know what probably is the, the use case, and then it's the right time to really engage with them as opposed to try to, because they're not going to actually respond to you. They're just going to check them, chase leads, cold calling is pretty much dead. And even if they respond, they're not going to share all that data, but they do have actually a body language as they use your a digital body language, as they start using your product. And that's what we do in Gainsight PX. We actually look at the usage pattern. We see it's a, let's say it's a hyper growth company now checking out. It can be even an enterprise company starting a trial. 
that we know that we want to see at least more momentum. We want to see when are they trying to really use the product. Then it signals to us, oh, guess what? There's a POC going on. If there's a POC going on, there's budget. And now it's up to us to understand their use cases they're trying to achieve. And to do that, we are actually trying, for example, during the trial process, we're trying to ask what type of use cases are you trying to achieve? So when I'm reaching out to you, the salesperson, I want to add value. And I want to tell you, hey, I, I see that you're trying to achieve this specific objective. Let me tell you how other customers do that. And can we help you with best practices? And then the response rate is, is fantastic. But if you try before that, before you, that you see there's enough momentum and interest, you're not going to get any, any response. I love the word you mentioned about digital body language. I just wrote it down because I think it's a really incredible way of just describing what goes on in your product. And on that note too, for a lot of the listeners, many of them are familiar with like product qualified leads. But for those that aren't, can you just give us a like high level overview of how you define product qualified leads? Yeah, product quality PQS is a new term that I wrote about even two years ago. It's about when you're having a trial process and it's part of your funnel, then allowing your leads to try to sign up for a trial classifies them as, I would say, product qualified leads. The qualification is a combination of who they are. Usually, I would say if it's an IBM or you know, Adobe scale type of customer, what are they trying to achieve? And then other elements that might be the use cases and so forth that they're trying to achieve that build up the qualification scope. So the same way as you have uh, MQL and SQL, usually MQL would be about the content they've read, the number of email they open, but that's pretty much limited. The PQL is coming to augment the data or even sometimes really take the majority chunk of that qualification saying, guess what, there's a POC going on, we can see the use case they're trying to achieve with the product. And therefore, this is a, a product qualified lead. The more advanced companies use that as a, a tech touch of, or self-service model where there's a you know, qualification of leads. They actually have a freemium model or it's a credit card transaction to begin with. And then the PQL is moving towards, let's say I have like a customer that I want to upsell into. For example, let's take uh, the cloud vendors. We have Amazon, we have Google. You can try with a free trial. It's a tech touch. Then you can add a credit card. It's still low volume uh, of interaction. It's still uh, zero touch. But as you are starting to spin up instances, your bill is getting higher. This is where you're becoming qualified for Google or Amazon to invest their salespeople to come in and advise you on the best practices. And they can see what type of usage you have so they can come prepared for that. And they will engage with the most relevant leads because in many cases, they will have a lot of you know, different types of customers and different sizes, but they want to optimize for the, the one that they see that's the right timing and the right fit. So PQL helps you a lot with the right timing and the right fit. And to kind of, I would say, avoid the user fatigue for, I'm getting like five to 10 cold calls a day. I really can't use my phone anymore. If I don't recognize the number, I just don't pick up the phone anymore. And I'm getting a lot of email marketing and I'm seeing a lot of ads. But you know, I do appreciate help when I actually try the product. I'm spending you know, my focus and time. That's the right time to engage with me as opposed to blast me with those uh, email marketing stuff. And you don't like that? 
<laughs> it has to be really, really interesting and really at the right time. Really at the right time. I just love those emails. But um, okay, so here's an interesting question. Do you need, like if you're going to use the whole product qualified lead model, do you need freemium or could you still use this with a free trial model? There's definitely, that's a very good question. I think that the freemium is definitely a set of uh, specific products. You have to build your product to support freemium. There's financial elements behind that. You have to have, for example, with the freemium model, you need to invest more in support, online support. So you're moving, you're shifting your investment towards servicers, but you do want to support those customers. It's about sometimes uh, meeting the revenue down the stream. It's exactly like open source in the past. It's free until you pay for it. You're, as a vendor, you're postponing your revenue. Uh, so freemium, there's a lot of elements to think about freemium. We do offer freemium up to a, a certain threshold, as well as actually the cloud vendors and others. But your product has to be ready for that. It has to be uh, almost self-served or completely self-served. And I think that the scoping of what the product can deliver is going to be something that can decide whether it's going to be a freemium or free trial. I can tell you that most B2B would actually be better with a free trial because this is really allows them to at least understand and, and welcome their user to try out the product and optimize for the initial value. Freemium and so service completely, uh, if you look at B2B, what we're building in B2B are platforms. And used to, in, we normally have more than one persona we definitely have a, a huge set of features. And over time, we have an even multi-product. So freemium there is an art that I think will be we will get there. But the free trial is what's happening right now. And this is why we have to be there as B2B vendors. And that would be my recommendation, that if you have existing product or you're building a platform, the free trial is going to be essential and a must-have. The freemium would be to a very specific set of features, a very highly focused uh, problem that you're solving to a specific user. That's where I see a free a freemium actually uh, as a better choice. Or if you're selling to very, very hands-on users for like engineering, for example, it's, uh, they are used to adopt uh, features that are very technical, so you can even go with freemium in that way. But usually in a B2B buyer, whether it's a marketer, sales, whether it's a PM or so forth, these guys not necessarily would care about freemium. They care about the end value. And this is where a free trial would be a better choice. Interesting. And I want to take that even a step further. So in your opinion, does having a free trial or a freemium model mean you are a product-led business? That's a very good point. I think the product-led growth for B2B just means that the product is taking center stage. And it's all about the product, but it's all about the end user experience. And companies in B2B that are not looking at the end user and the end user experience start with the first moment of value or the first touch uh, and optimizing for the user, not optimizing for sales or marketing or customer success. You need to optimize for the user journey. And the product-led growth in today's world, I would say, is consumer-driven mostly. And that's what I would actually recommend. And that's, the, to me, is like really the right way to go in the future. I know you talked about trial users. That's what a lot of B2B apps should be doing. 
I'm really curious what you think the length should be or should it be usage? I know this is like a huge debate. Like people have shown data, like should it be 14? Should it be seven? Should it be like after they've used it like I don't know, X number of times? What are your thoughts on that? That's a very interesting question. There's a couple of uh, elements there in B2B again and, and volatile growth for B2B, uh, as I said, is about the end user and it's about the product management getting much, much, much closer to the end user and to accelerate time to value and, and I think to accelerate revenue. That's and it's across the entire customer lifecycle. To set a seven days, 14 days, a 30 days trial is one way to help uh, create some urgency around the user. What we're seeing in the market, because as a platform, people are actually using our platform to run some of their trials. They actually run a paywall and some of them are after 14 days, some of them are 30 days. That's one way. I think the, uh, a trial in B2B needs to be longer because of the availability of the, the users in B2B space, because the use case tend to be you know, more than just uh, one set of features. So I would say 30 days would be optimal. Within the 30 days, you want to engage at the right time and accelerate that. This is why you need to reach out and have a, a system and a process that, you know, you've captured a use case, you've captured a persona, and then within 30 days, you can really optimize that. One very interesting element of trials is actually being born, as I'm seeing right now, is value-based trial. And I've seen, for example, the trial is open until you actually realize the value. Let's say I'm SendGrid. I would start, I know that SendGrid is about sending emails, so the, the trial will be actually open until I will successfully send an email through SendGrid. Then they realize I understood the value of the platform, and then they can lock the same uh, the trial. The same thing with uh, Gainsight PX. We kind of let you feel the experience as soon as you're hitting the threshold of above a certain set of data uh, volume. Then we realize you know what the platform can deliver and we are respectful of your time, and sometimes it's just it might be 35 days uh, or 40 days that you need. So that uh, would be, I think, the optimal way. Another very interesting thought about quality growth and running trials and expansion and looking at the customer adoption in general is I think in the future, we're going to see micro-trials. Whether it's you started using my product, you became a customer, now my, my job is to expand. Uh, one element to think about is we see the land should be smaller deal in, just to make that first customer acquisition faster. And then there's expand, and that's exactly the, the role of the product. For example, if I just started with Google Cloud, I've uh, started with a small uh, number of servers, now I want to expand. This is where the right timing for the product to kick in. And what I'm seeing is, Customers are now experimenting and exposing features for you in the product and allowing you to try them out. So you might have, uh, let's say you have the journey to adopt five different core features. You became a customer by adopting the first one, but now in the product, I want to expose you to the others and I want to allow you to try them out when you need them and then run that trial for you automatically. So if I just, let's say if you're using HAPX, you've done an in-app guide, but now I want to expose you to the email engagement. And should I just show you that and give you a trial for that? 
and it becomes more and more common a way for product-led growth companies to play with features, to experiment, to expose you to micro trials, and they know that you might have different features you want to use at the right time. So running only one trial means that I'm still trying to sell all the package to you as opposed to I want to run micro trials and you as a user are going to start the trial as a customer as you're using the system. Yeah, I think that whole notion of like having a micro trial, really interesting, especially if you have a multi-product company, because I know even with, I use HubSpot for a CRM and it's just like, okay, you start with a free CRM and whether you're using the sales or marketing products, there's trials for the pro version of each of those. And so I think it's a really smart strategy to really get the people into your ecosystem, get them up to a certain point of value. And then once they start hitting some of those feature limits, it can really make sense for them to expand into some more of those advanced features. But that giving them that micro trial, you're really just giving them that seamless experience for them to, to try it out on their own, as well as your sales team can now know, okay, these people are currently looking at specific parts of the products. They're interested in expanding their business. Maybe it's if they sign up for the Marketing Pro product, they want to generate more leads and start using email and all these things. How can we help them? So I think it can start some really great conversations that are very much focused on what the end user ultimately wants to get out of your product. So I thank you for mentioning that because I don't think a lot of people think about micro trials, but they can be super effective. And I think it just goes to show like there is no one size fits all whenever it comes to like, is it free trial versus freemium? Because there's these weird things in between like your hybrid approaches, which might be usage-based or value-based, however you want to kind of call it to me there almost the same thing. <laughs> and so there's so many ways you can slice and dice it. And so for people, regardless of what model they're using, whether it's a free trial, premium, hybrid, you know, make something else up on their own. How do they really go about building a successful product-led growth strategy? Yeah, I think that uh, the fact that we need to understand a, the customer perspective and we are tr- as a B2B platform, you have a lot of things. As HubSpot, for example, they have so many offerings. And if they try to pitch everything and just you know bring everything to you, it's going to be a very lengthy process. And as, a, as an end user, I don't have the time spent to relearn everything in order to take a decision. So I think uh, splitting that to chunks and having me experience whether it's a trial or freemium or just understand the basic initial value is a, a fantastic product-led growth strategy. So we're looking at that. And then as they, they will learn and absorb and understand your differentiated features once they need it. It's really hard to get them up to speed and so become an expert in HubSpot from day one. You know, HubSpot knows the differentiation. And they know that you know, there's a couple of features that are, are super you know, killer features for them. But can they now pitch it and train you and, and make you drive a decision based on that on the first moment you just met HubSpot, that's a challenge. And what they've done, which is fantastic, is, hey, start with simple. You have a simple problem. We have a, a very specific problem. There is obviously the first uh, service that we can provide you with. You're going to be satisfied with that. But we know what you're going to need in the second phase and third phase and fourth phase and we're going to serve that to you as you need it. And that's exactly the art of product growth. Get them what they need. Get them to experience. 
is one element. As a product team, you need to be prepared for that. You need to really understand your user behavior and to really uh, understand what to optimize for. I think as the product is getting ready for product growth strategies, trials is a must-have. It's just a way to really experience the product to, or at least make sure that when do you use the product, your sales team is really proficient around that and they're focusing on the initial value because the customers are overwhelmed if you try to just uh, pitch their 45 minutes demo and just like try to give them the entire thing uh, all at once. So uh, important growth is really making your product ready for trials, looking at the customer behavior, optimizing on initial value, which means if I sign up for HubSpot and I'm trying to, whether it's the CRM, what's the first moment of value? How can I get up and running with the simple stuff first? The second element to think about is your company maturity, your product maturity. So for example, if you're a startup, try to optimize for initial value and really hit the product market fit. If you're a growth company, you want to optimize for different things. And this is where you need to really look at what type of elements you're going to focus on. Every product manager I know is focusing on the long-term differentiation. But in many cases, that's not the right solution because as a consumer, I want to get to the value quickly. I don't have really a lot of time to be in exporting a platform. I want to experience value quickly. So I think that the product growth uh, from a product perspective is also to focus on the first mile of product, making sure this is smooth. This is almost self-serve, if not all self-serve. And the experience is something I would share with others. And now you got me hooked. I would also look at, for example, on how to tie marketing into the mix. As I start a trial, obviously anyone can start a trial and it becomes like a, a lead form. I submitted something, something came up, I just got you know text from someone and I lost focus. So it's really important to reach out and nurture me as, as I started that trial. And this is where marketing teams are coming in and helping you with best practices and making sure that we are once we capture you, we can keep you hooked to the product. And we said about how sales team can be prepared is about really engaging when it's the right time and they have to be very contextual. Obviously, all the other ways are pretty much not effective. Cold calling and trying to just like uh, offer something very generic doesn't really work. Another element when you do with the product growth is even your demos has to be very, very contextualized and colorized. The customer now expect to see their use case in your product and that if you're able to do that, that's going to drive a lot of uh, success to you. Certainly. And one thing I love is your first point about adoption. I think it's one of the most important areas that any product-led business has to really focus on because if you're just giving these users an experience regular and really test it out on her own, you really have to give them that helping hand. And if you do a really poor job of it, you might just overwhelm your support team, for instance. It, there's, it could really backfire in some different ways or more often, people just won't come back. And so that's really scary when you start looking at your stats and you see you know, 40, 60% of people are just not coming back to your products. 
that is scary for any product-led business. And so I really love your perspective on you just don't want to overwhelm people when they first come to the product because I see it happening all the time where people try and uh, treat onboarding like this, this one trick pony where you come into the product we're going to show you everything. And it's just great because they maybe it's an in-app guy. They, they walk you through everything. They show you the lay of the land. And then you're left at the end of that whole experience and you're actually no closer to solving your problem. So it really backfires at the end of the day because you just overwhelmed them. You didn't help them. You wanted to flaunt all your features and everything else, but it wasn't actually what they needed at that point. So I think the idea of almost thinking of onboarding like a ladder is really interesting. Like, what do they have to do in step one to get to step two? And then, for instance, for that HubSpot example, I keep going on that same band. It's like, well, you need a CRM before you can actually send emails. So let's get you on that first step and then we can move you. So I think it's really fascinating to think about it through that lens. But what are some other things you've seen companies do to increase product adoption since like your product helps people do this? So I'm sure you see this all the time. Absolutely. Two tips that I saw that was that were very, very successful. One is really to capture the use case. Whether it's a trial or let's say I'm, I'm a customer, the use case, the reason I chose your product get to be lost in the journey. And I'm going to meet your customer success. I'm going to speak with support. But none of them completely remembers what was my original goal for that usage of that product. The reason I chose that product was for to solve something and to capture that is really important. So as they sign up or if they become a customer, even if you don't have a trial, obviously if you do have a trial, capture the use cases. Usually you have at least three to five use cases, objectives that people are trying out your product. If you don't, you don't have product market fit, but usually you have. These are repeatable use cases, capture them. The second is the roles. You have the practitioner, the hands-on person, and then you have the executive as well. Know which one is which, so capture that as well. As part of the trial, hey, what's your role? Just give them some options. Hey, what's the objective? Give them the five options. They can even multi-select. Now, that data will help you understand and figure out the right adoption path. When you measure adoption, do you really know what type of user or what was the objective, or you just put an average and look at the trend? That dimension is key for B2B. Second is many B2B platforms are pretty much very extensive and they need data to show value. In a trial, you don't have the data. How can you actually deal with that challenge? So obviously, in-app experience is one, but also an empty state. We actually have a project around that. How can I show you potentially what a sandbox type of product would look like? So some actually would give you a sandbox access to, to realize the value of the features and especially in B2B, because just tossing them into an empty product is very, very challenging. They might not get it in that sense. So that's also another tip that uh, I, would, uh, I would look at. That. And then again, once you figure that out, you have the data, you have the adoption, I would also tie the outcome and revenue to the feature adoption so you can really build an expansion path. One of the things that you need to start educating in B2B is like, what would be a good uh, feature to upsell towards because most B2B, they pretty much give you all the features in one pricing model. And it's like starting to be more, I would say, adoption and expansion driven. You need to think about the pricing, tie that to the value. 
and to make sure that you're not blocking them from initial value. And then when it's the right time, they will be happy to pay you for that because they realize the extended value that you provide. So one of the also the tips is do not limit the core functionality or core value of your product that might you know, push them out to different products. But if you build additional value, for example, I see Elastic, suddenly they have additional amazing value around security, about scale, high availability. Great. These are what I need them when I'm successful as a customer and I'm happy to pay them when I need it. And that's a very clear differentiation of packaging. So that's also the role of the PM with a product like growth is figure out the path, figure out the differentiation and think about when would you like to introduce the pricing and splitting between your core features and the new features you want to upsell them. In many cases, I've seen that all the features being pushed, one price fits all, and then they're in renewal, they would say, oh, we're not using this, we're seeing that. Try to be more optimized for that customer use cases. And one of the points there that I want to double emphasize is what happens whenever people first log into your product. So you're totally right. Like most products is just empty. There's nothing in your SaaS product usually when you first log in. So you got to do something, whether it's integrate something or make use of it. Even like if it's a sign, you got to start adding little projects to it for it to really be valuable for you. So that real estate, when people first get into your products, that is probably the most, I'd argue, the most valuable real estate you could buy in your SaaS product for that first-time user because it can really make or break that difference. And so I think it's really interesting. I use the um, kind of like bowling alley framework analogy of solving this. So if you think about bowling in that same context, think about how crazy it might be to expect someone who's never bowled before to get a strike the first time. I mean, like, it's pretty crazy. It would be very lucky. So on the other hand, when it comes to your product, like, what is the percentage of people you think who without any guidance whatsoever could strike out and really see value in your product? So it's never going to happen for the most part, unless they're super eager beaver to go into that product and really go through the pain of figuring out how to actually make sense of your product. So you need to put bumpers in place, whether that is product tour or empty state or in-app guidance, you need to actually guide them to see success in that product. So I wanted to end on that note because I think it is just one of the most important things. If you really do want to build a product like business, you have to understand how to guide those end users and help them become successful. So I know (laughs) we are wrapping up here, but the one question I wanted to ask you last is what is the the best phone number where people can cold call you? <laughs> Actually, the biggest mistake I've done probably is uh, making my phone number currently LinkedIn. So as soon as I accept someone, then I get the, the cold calling immediately. Now we but know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I was just like really excited about project growth. It looks like a tremendous change in the market. Why I'm really passionate about how can we help bigger company with real problems, how they do look at those type of elements as a, a wide set of product. Because, you know, if you're a, a Dropbox, it's pretty clear what I'm trying to achieve. But if you're a big company, how can you adopt project growth? And I'm seeing also another pattern, just to finish up with that, all large uh, hyper-growth companies are getting pressure on their metrics. They, they are now compared to, uh, you know, 
Twilio is being providing their numbers and are super efficient, right? So how can I be as a B2B platform, how can I compete with that type of efficiency? Uh, so there's a lot of pressure there. And then there's a lot of uh, time to value elements in most platforms, right? So you're seeing when you look at the G2 crowd and, and complexity is becoming the, the challenge of your product, and, but you're a platform, you want to have that differentiation. How can you balance that? It's, it's really something to think about. So again, this is the, the new, I think, journey for the B2B product growth. And one of the strategies I've seen is either pricing and packaging their product or some companies also even build a smaller product just to address that they might make it freemium, but then they can just lead with that. And I've seen a company like Clarison, for example, it's a project management company, and they actually launched a subset product to really address ease of use, and then they have a full platform they can upgrade you later on. So that's actually another strategy you can think of, definitely different you know, uh, the costs around that, building a new product and designating a team. But sometimes that's the right solution as opposed to trying to get a, a, a big platform and become, you know, a very lightweight solution. But, but definitely uh, that's the challenge and that's what I'm excited about with the product growth. Absolutely. And if you look at even just history with the industrialization era, I'm reading Titan right now, John D. Rockefeller. And one of the interesting things, whether it was him or Andrew Carnegie, when they really built these empires is they weren't actually trying to gouge all the customers. They actually, their whole deterrent was the fact that they could actually lower the prices so it would demotivate competition and they would actually build these monopolies. So I think it's really fascinating to see companies like you were just mentioning Twilio that can really operate at this level of efficiency that can really beat out a lot of those other competitors. So if you really do want to dominate your market, I think it is a, a huge asset to have a product-led business because a lot of the times those metrics are just way more capital efficient than your sales-led alternatives. Yeah, and product-led growth is actually for everybody. And I know that usually the most common example is Slack. Uh, but I can tell you that Slack, you know, as they grow, they go up market and they have an ecosystem. They have a, definitely a way to engage other customers. And then they even have a, a human touch, human driven approach when they deal with enterprises, but they figure out how to gain market share and then they build the right solution. And Slack is, has a lot of different features you might even, not even know about, but they, they kind of figure out the product like those strategy across the board. And product-led growth doesn't mean only trying. It doesn't mean only freemium. It doesn't mean that it's a tech touch. It means that the product is, is the experience and you're leveraging that to adopt to the end-user expectation. Absolutely. It's a powerful moat you can build for your business if you can really own that user experience and provide that user with what they really do want at the end of the day. So I was joking with the first question about the cold call number, but now we know your real number and where to find it. <laughs> so uh, outside of finding you on LinkedIn, where can people learn more about you and what you're up to against IPX? We have a, an active community uh, around product. We also have uh, blogs in Gainsight. I have some, you know, slides in SlideShare and my LinkedIn profile. So it's all available. Awesome. And you heard him. You know where to find that number. <laughs> Mickey loves <laughs> cold calls. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a fun shot. Thank you very much. 